welcome to the Commission Bread Podcast, a mortgage professional's complete guide on how to successfully scale your business and not fall into the trap of commission breath. And now your hosts, Brandon Love and Tom Moffat. All right, all right. Today we have a special guest, Glenn Sutherland on the podcast. I'm very, very excited for this one. Glenn, I've known you for, I want to say, at least two years now. And when I first heard your name, it was actually through your podcast, A Canadian Investing in the US. So today, we're going to be talking about mainly investing in the States as Canadians. So if you are an American listener, a lot of this may not apply to you, but we're going to probably go over a lot of cool investing strategies that Glenn has done as well. So some stuff here will apply to you. Without further ado, Glenn, welcome to the podcast. What's keeping you busy these days? (laughs) Hey, Thanks, guys, for having me, Brandon, Tom. And also, for the Americans, I'll try to make sure that there's content for them, too. What am I up to today? I don't know. Business is regular. Uh, like, we're buying, we're selling. Like, uh, I was even telling you before we did this recording, I'm like, selling a property right now. So, you know, if I have to jump off, but we're good. We closed. So, we're, we're oh, good. Awesome. But uh, always buying, always selling, running a business, which I think is the main thing that distinguishes a lot of real estate investors. Some of them run businesses and some of them own a bunch of real estate. But yeah, I feel like every time I pull up Facebook, I see you with some sort of transaction, whether you're buying, selling, flipping, you got a lot going on. So like today's property, whereabouts was that that you just sold? I was just selling. It was one of the properties I probably bought, like, I think it was pre-COVID. So like three, four years ago, but it was in Dayton, Ohio. So it's not a recent one. There's a fourplex. And the honest truth of why we sold it is we got our property tax assessment and in Ohio, or at least for certain parts of Ohio, you pay your taxes at the end of the year for like the year before. So it's a little backwards to other places, but anyway, you pay them at the end and we just got noticed that our tax bill had quadrupled. So we unloaded the property. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you run into those things too. Cause I mean, with your portfolio, you're always going to have some sort of small issues with properties here and there. What originally had you go out of the country to the States. Like it's becoming more popular now when you started, nobody was doing it. Like what kind of made you go that direction? Well, that's a good question. And I probably should have prepared for this better. (laughs) There's a bunch of reasons. So whenever I first did it, honestly, I'm not a good property manager. So that's honestly one of my biggest weaknesses. So when I was in investing in Canada, I was doing my own property management, which means that I was putting tenants in that probably shouldn't have been in making a lot of mistakes that way, which I outsource now, obviously. But what happened was I was at the Ontario Landlord Tenant Board all the time, like all the time. I was trying to grow a property here. I was hitting restraints where, you know, banks knew they were saying you're maxed out. I think it was they got me to five or six and they're like, that's all you get based on my income because I was personally qualifying for these back then. So they're basically saying, that's all you get. And so (laughs) I wanted to grow. I wanted to get bigger and Back then, which is like, I don't know, seven, 10 years ago, I was listening to a lot of American podcasts. And honestly, back then, there wasn't a lot of Canadian podcasts. It was still fairly new for podcasts. And it was American content. And I was just like, I learned and I was like, there's some different things here. And then I did some research and I'm like, you know, I think my first houses I was buying for like 90 grand. And I was like, and these are houses, like full houses with garages and and my semis or townhouses I had in... Canada were like 350,000 then. <laughs> now they're much more, but they're like 350,000 and the rents were like $1,400. And I was like, in the US, I was going, oh, I can get a place for, you know, $80,000, $90,000. And I'm like, I can rent them for $1,200. And I was like, wait a sec. 
But it's not all, you know, paint a nice, beautiful photo of this. But the interest rates, even back then, were much higher in the U.S. than Canada. Like mortgage rates, there's a huge advantages to doing mortgages. Kind of tooting you guys' horn a little bit because I know you guys are mortgage guys. But <laughs> mortgage rates are always better in Canada. As much as you think they're so high and so terrible in Canada, they are higher in the U.S. Yeah, exactly. Especially as a foreign investor too, like you're going to get dinged with even a, a higher interest rate. But all those points though, are like, that's exactly what led me to go that route as well with investing in the States is mainly the landlord tenant laws. I'm going to butcher this probably 52 States. <laughs> I think it's 50, isn't there? Is it 50? Okay. 50, whatever it is. 52 you know. weeks in a year. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to add two today. Yeah. yeah. States to pick from. So the world's your oyster in the States. And I love that because like every state is different with landlord tenant laws. So I love that fact. And also the cash flow too. I haven't really ventured down the rabbit hole of investing in the States since I bought the one property. So you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but are you still seeing the 1% rule in a lot of these states that you're investing in? Well, that's kind of a rigged question, but like, honestly, I don't buy based on the 1% rule, but it does exist, right? It, it does exist, which 1%, what he's uh, talking about is if the rent was $1,000, the house price would be $100,000. Monthly rent would be 1% of the house price, but that's more of like a turnkey number. Yeah. And I have seen like, I do get emails still from turnkey operators because I always want to keep my finger on the pulse. And there's always like students who are kind of interested in like, hey, what is it like? And I kind of have to still know what's going on, even though it's not what I buy, but it has went up, right? There's a lot of them that aren't at the 1%. The thing is, as the purchase prices go up, right? Like over COVID, Canada, the US, it's a lot of appreciation, but the rent to value ratio, it gets worse as prices go up. And it's not like a lot of people think, oh, it's a Canada thing because the houses are half a million dollars and the rents are you know three grand or something like that, right? But it's not that. It's not a Canadian thing. It's the same thing in the US, right? As you get more expensive, it doesn't go up at the same rate, right? So yeah. your cash flow gets compressed as you go. So a lot of times when you get into more expensive homes, a lot of people are more thinking like to do a different strategy, like a lease option or like an Airbnb rather than a traditional rental to make it make sense and own a nicer property. When you realize this, did you shift your strategy like sell off those Canadian properties and go all in on the States? Or are you kind of keeping? Well, I like to think that I like was smart. A lot of it is just luck and timing with some of these things, right? To be completely honest. And what happened is I sold off my portfolio in Canada. Some of it, probably half of it before COVID. And then I sold, I think the final three or four of them during COVID. And part of it was I needed to get into a cash position. So it wasn't like I was like trying to time the market or it actually timed out really nicely because things were really high at that point. I'm not going to brag and say I knew what was coming. It was totally guessing and I was moving. The other thing is if you ever try to move when you don't have a job, guess what? It makes uh, qualifying and everything a lot more difficult. <laughs> so as you guys, and you guys are more appropriate, you understand this. So I got myself into a cash position because I wasn't sure how much I was going to have to dump into this, my principal residence just to make the move work, right? I didn't know how the banks were going to look at this. They were going to look at, and I hadn't been on my own, like self-employed for a long period of time. So it's like, are you going to qualify me? Because a lot of times they'll say, oh, we're going to qualify you based on the taxable income, right? From either the IRS or CRA. But if it's not that old, like a lot of times they want to see repetitiveness. They want to see the same kind of numbers every year. And if your numbers are even 
all over the map. You know, you did more flips one year than the other year. COVID happened, you know, interest rates went up, you slowed down a little bit, so you don't flip as many houses that year, or maybe you hold more and do refinances, depending on what your strategy is at different times and your income changes based on what strategy you're doing at the time, right? Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, yeah, very true. And and at this point, like, are you still flipping with the combination of buying and holding or like what main strategy are you using? To be completely honest, we're in the middle of changing strategies right now. So in 2022 and first, you know, half of 2023, we were doing a lot of flipping, right? I still have six houses up on the market right now. So if you went through my Facebook feed, you could probably see that some of those are up still. And I have three more that are going to hit the market, I think, next week or the week after. So I'll have nine up there, but what I've transitioned to is what we started buying, we're closing on next week, are more focused on back to the long-term holds, so we're buying duplexes, because I love duplexes. Those are my favorites, anyways, for long-term rentals. Single-family homes, you know, the numbers aren't quite as good as duplex. Multifamily is going to outperform single-family. And fourplexes, you tend to get tenants that just don't get along, and they leave because of that, or they're in a transitional period, especially if they're small units, and they don't really stay as long. But a duplex... It's like the perfect mix of the two. But the real transition that we're doing is right now is transitioning into the large multi. So we've been almost on a weekly basis putting offers on units that are somewhere between 80 to 120 units, mostly in Texas, right? So it has a different resilience. If the market drops, like you're based on net operating income, if you're in an area where there is no vacancy, like just like Ontario is, right? There's very little vacancy. Certain parts of Texas are the same way. You'll ride it right through, right? And setting up some long-term financing. You can do your improvements and, you know, create a lot of value for the investors. So we're sort of transitioning to that would be, I think, is be safer. And the hard part is that a lot of people still in that space aren't ready to take a huge lowball offer. <laughs> so they still are too close to last year, right? And so they still, they don't have the pinch on. Typically, when you buy those buildings, you use like gap funding, or I can't think of the other term for it. But anyway, short term financing, like we use like a two year note or a three year note. And in those cases, the bleeding hasn't happened. If they just set their mortgage up last year, they still have a year or two left on their mortgage. It's not until they get to the end that they have to sell. What the game I'm playing right now is just lots of offers. And when we get one, everyone who's involved is going to make a lot of money. But the hard part is it's a numbers game. Just like whenever I was starting the single family, put offers out every single week on multiple properties and eventually someone will take your crazy offer. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the game we're kind of playing. You're playing a long game. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. And so like that seems to be the natural projection as you start with the single family dwellings, duplexes, triplexes, you work your way up to commercial. So what made you make the switch now because you've got a huge portfolio right like do you even know how many properties you have in your portfolio i don't and it depends what you count you count places you're selling like i don't know if you even count those but i don't know under 100 anyway somewhere around yeah. that but a lot of them are houses so it's not the same as like i have a 100 unit apartment building right it's a lot of underwriting right? yeah yeah exactly yeah. yeah so i wouldn't want to underwrite your file with <laughs> you know, I just did one that had eight doors and that felt like that was a lot to underwrite. So going north of 50 is probably a nightmare for oh, that at your lenders. I'll get paid well. That brings up a good story. I won't do name drops of certain banks, but I went to a major bank in Ontario or Canada and they're like, oh yeah, we'll do your thing. And I sent over all the documents they wanted. And then it got to three weeks before closing because we had a two month close. I don't have a pre-approval. I don't have nothing. Like I have made a blind offer, no conditions. I'm like, 
we close here? What do you need? And they're like, oh, we haven't started on your file. Like you sent so much paperwork and so many docs. And they're like, I really don't know if we'll have time to do it in three weeks. I'm like, when were you going to let me know? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I switched to another bank, which is still a national bank. And they got it done in like a week. But it depends who you work with. I'm sure you work with you guys, which I will next time, right? I don't think I knew you back then. But you work with people who are you know, passionate about it. And that's what they, they'll just get it done. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. On the topic of financing, when you're going to get these properties in the States as a Canadian, what's the experience like? What are you encountering as an investor there? So like I said, it's going to be more expensive, the interest rates. I mean, it also depends on what you're trying to do. And that's one of the things that Canadians mostly get mixed up on. Sometimes it's just because they're new. And sometimes it's just they don't understand all the different loan programs. So like a lot of times you're talking like, you know, depending what you're buying it through or you're financing it through, you're using a CMBS loan or portfolio loan or, you know, an insurance company is backing this loan. And even the requirements for those different lenders is going to be different. And what their goal is, is going to be different. Like an insurance company is going to want security. So, you know, they might give you some better terms, but lower leverage, you know, to try and keep you in. And they're going to make huge prepayment penalties. If you want to get out of that early, they don't want that. They're going to make it attractive for you to get into the loan, but they're going to make it very unattractive to leave the loan, right? So a lot of times when Canadians are going down there, they're kind of going to those kind of lenders or hard money lenders is what they like to call them. And it is the easiest money to get, right? It's not going to be based on your T4 income or Americans or W2 income, none of that stuff, right? It's going to be like, what is the deal? It's going to be more like doing commercial financing. Is this a good deal? What is the uh, DSCR on this? If the DSCR works, we'll do it. If it's a fix and flip loan, which is a different loan program, like a short loan program, typically they're one year. Sometimes you can get 16 months, but why would you want to be renovating for that long? I would just not do that project. <laughs> and you can get them shorter too, but typically like right now, they're mostly saying they're 1% per month. So that's a 12% note. But the thing is you're hopefully be in and out, right? And then as you get into like the bigger financing, you know, you're going to probably go into, what's the term for it? Agency lending, right? Agency lending, agency debt. And the thing is, as Canadians, really hard to qualify for that stuff. So you're probably going to be bringing in a key principal, um, usually an American who has the net worth of the loan to back that for you and guarantee it for you. And they're going to take a piece of the deal for doing that risky business. Americans have non-recourse loans. So you can set those up. And a lot of times the lenders will put Canadians into those. What a non-recourse loan is, is you're not personally guaranteeing the loan. If you don't make your payments, they're going to go after the property. They don't have like a recourse to come after your car or your principal residence. They're non-recourse. And you go, why would they want you to go in that? The reason is risk to reward. They really don't have much recourse to come after us in Canada either, right? So if they don't have much recourse to come after us in Canada, and they're only going to be able to go after the actual property anyway, then they may as well do a non-recourse loan because then they can charge more money for the non-recourse. The setup will be more expensive for a non-recourse. The interest rate will be more expensive for a non-recourse. So a lot of times they're going to put you into that. The other thing for Canadians who are investing down there, or Americans even, like a lot of times they get rate shopping. They think that they need to go around and, you know, they're like, Glenn, give me a list of like your 10 favorite lenders down there. And then they're going to call each of them and they're going to say, which one has the best rate? What they don't realize is lending a lot different in Canada and the US. And what's going to happen is your money, like the fees to set up this loan to pay those mortgage brokers is being paid by you. It's not rolled into the loan. 
and it varies a lot. It's going to be a bigger difference than what the interest rates are. And a lot of people get hooked on the, what the interest rate is, and then they don't realize that by switching from one company to the other company, they might be even a half percent cheaper, but they paid you know, $5,000, I'm not even lying, or $7,000 more in setup fees than the other loan. And the break-even point on that small half percent interest rate means you're going to have to hold that property sometimes for like seven years to even break even for that additional setup fees you paid. And so I was like, I'd rather pay that setup fee gradually. And so you need to be smart. Do a break-even calculator. How much more are you paying? How much more are you paying the other note? Divide them by each other. You know exactly how long and how many months it's going to take you to break even on those payments. And then you have to make a call on the project. It's not easy because sometimes you're like, I'm going to hold it forever. And you're like, that's great. But what happens if right now interest rates are really high? What if interest rates are low? If they go down, would you refinance? Right. And it's a lot of questions that you don't know the answers to. And you're yeah, making exactly. and I, you have the option. Correct me if I'm wrong. You can buy down points there. Yeah. Like that's what I did for mine because we did the calculation as well. Because I remember you mentioned that. So we did the calculation of like what's the break even point. And for us, it made sense to buy down the points, which you have that option there. You can buy down those points and have a higher interest rate, which, like you said, nine times out of 10, it usually makes sense if you're maybe not holding that for seven plus years. Most mortgage brokers line it up so it'll line up to like the three or three and a half percent where the break even is so if you are lazy and don't want to do the math you can kind of think that that's the buy down they're willing to pay the points it's probably three three and a half right. years before you you know want to refinance for it to make sense or you want to sell for it to make sense but you know not always <laughs> yeah. and what kind of team structure did you put in place down there i can't imagine you're driving across the border all the time or flying out to check on these units. So do you have like a property manager for each specific spot or did you put a small team in place in certain areas? Yeah. So I started off originally with a team that was nationwide and I thought this is going to be perfect. They had branches in any city that I'd ever heard of. Right. So I was like, this will be perfect. I'll be able to go into one property management portal, be able to call one, one 800 number and go through it. The problem was that as I started, I had a whole bunch of issues. When my first property had a lawn maintenance issue on it, well, they kept charging me lawn maintenance. The tenant was supposed to be doing the lawn maintenance, so I wasn't supposed to be getting them. And I won't do more name drops, but telephone companies, the same thing. You're going to call in, you're going to get like first level, and you're going to explain your problem, and they're going to go, oh, that you need to take something off your bill, you're going to have to go to second level. And then you repeat your problem at second level. And then they say, oh, that's an accounting issue. You need to go over to accounting. And then you repeat your issue again. And then, anyway, it was driving me nuts. I wanted the more personal touch. So then I ended up hiring a small local company. They had like nine people who worked in the office, did the property management, and I kind of adapted that structure going forward. You know, I have property managers in each different city. For a while, I was doing a couple cities. Sometimes I have a property manager that was willing to travel the hour and a half, or they had a separate team in the other one. But I'm getting more to even, I don't like that. I really want someone personal to that city, someone who is like the office is in that city. Even if there's a girl that sort of operates that city, it's, it may not be good enough. What's their backup? Do they get vacation? Because who do I call during that period? <laughs> You know, because sometimes they get thin if you get into the remote offices, right? They don't have the same backup structure or you're calling the main office and they don't know anything about your property. <laughs> 
they're checking notes. And so, no, but mostly I do like to have like a smaller property manager in each one. The main team, you're going to have contractors because I like to renovate each of my properties. You're going to have attorneys. A lot of times I get my attorneys. I build that team out from the property managers is where the attorneys come from. And the reason is they do evictions. They deal with liens. They deal with all that stuff. They know the proper people to do that and usually just ask them and expand out. I've started hiring project managers to manage this, which a lot of people are surprised. Even I did a call this morning with a new joint venture and they were like, who is this guy? I thought I was just talking to you. And I'm like, you get enough properties and it's too much for one person. You start having to hire subdelegate stuff and, and look over people's shoulders and make sure they're doing the right thing and being on the call still, but they can do a lot of the legwork before the call and, and even run the calls. So you're just there to witness and you know ask questions and make sure they're on pace. But it doesn't take a lot of people. You know, you want to sell properties, realtors, you want to buy stuff, you could use realtors, you could go off market with wholesalers. We've bought from REO, which is like short sales and foreclosures from the bank, pre-foreclosures, before they go into foreclosure, usually, anyway, I won't go into explaining pre-foreclosures, but depending on what you're trying to do, a lot of people off the start are going to start with a realtor or a turnkey company. Honestly, it's one of the hardest things to do because it's the only way you're going to get yourself out of that situation to sell that property or refinance that property is bank on appreciation to push it up high enough that it makes sense to do those things. And honestly, in this market, that's a tough game to play. So I personally, when people are saying, I just want to buy a turnkey property, I'd be like, why don't you just even go on the MLS and just start lowballing everybody? and See who yeah. will take it. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what do you want to leverage? You want to leverage your cash or your time? And if you're willing to put in the time and find something off the MLS and get a deal right off the bat, then that's the route you go. That's bang on. So if you're a Canadian listening to this and you're kind of like, I'm interested in going to the States because I know the cash flow is higher there for the most part and depends on the state, but depends on the state. More they're all different. <laughs> yeah, they're all different. You have more options. There's more options for landlord tenant laws being in your favor as a landlord. There's just more to pick from. And all of these other benefits, like what would be the first place someone should go to, to look and say, okay, how do I build up this plan? How do I get all this information? Well, education is not a bad idea to do stuff. You're looking for the free way to do it. I have a podcast. I think we're at episode mid 280s, 280. So it's a lot of episodes to listen to. You know, there's a lot to learn from that, but the same thing is it's not everything. Like, you know, you want to talk about short sales and even in my course, like, we're going to talk about that for like an hour, right? And you're going to get yeah. a guest. I Most of my guests are 20 minutes. So you're like, they just sort of explain what a short sale is and, you know, maybe how to find it and stuff, but not actually how to run one, right? Yeah. Um, so you can take my program. There's lots of other programs out there for education to do this. A lot of them, they're fairly inexpensive, right? And the one project, you buy one thing and you should be saving more money than what the course costs, right? It yeah, be that's exactly it. And that's the route I went to because I started listening to all your episodes. And I still remember, I think it was episode 100. That yeah. was like the basics of like just giving you the full rundown. That would actually be the first place I'd tell people to go to is yeah. go to that episode because you broke it down nicely there. And then that got me fired up to go on this whole venture of investing down south. And from there, I was like, okay, well, I know if I fast track this by taking your course, spend a bit of money on that, long term, I'll save more money based off of the accelerated learning that I'm going to get from the course. And so that's the route I went. Of course, if you want to do it completely free, you can do it just by, I mean, your podcast alone. Yep. There's a lot of information there, especially the 100, the 200. I usually put a ton of information. Those ones sort of sum up the 100 episodes. 
But yeah, if you know you're going to go into the U.S., you're going to need an ITIN, which is an international tax ID number, I believe is what it stands for. That's going to be like you're going to need to fill out boxes that say SSN, right? Like in Canada, it's SIN, but in the U.S., it'll be SSN. You'll fill in your ITIN in those same spots, same number of characters. It's your personal tax ID number with the IRS. You're going to need that no matter what. You're going to have to do some market analysis and figure out what market makes sense for you. You're going to have to reach out, build teams. And then you're going to have to do some deal analysis and make sure that market works for you. If those three things work out, then you call up, I can refer you to an attorney or a lawyer or some CPAs that can do this. And then they can set up your structure. But honestly, some people, one big mistake is they jump ahead, start the structure right off the bat. The most common thing is I want California or I want Florida. You know, I love Florida still, but there's still lots of states that cash flow a lot better than Florida. If that was your strategy, if you're doing flips, I love Florida for flips, right? So you know, you go in, you find what makes sense, and then you set up your structure, right, beforehand. Yeah, yeah that, that's what we did too. We set up the structure after we purchased because we, actually, no, that's a lie. We set up a structure in Alabama first, and then we ended up purchasing an Indy, and then we learned the hard way the first time, purchase first, then set up the corp and everything else. But yeah, that's a key tip there because everyone sets up the corp first thinking like, it's got to be Florida. I need to go there. I need the vacation. <laughs> I need the sun. That's such a Canadian thing to do. There is still great places in Florida for cash flow. Don't get me wrong, right? Jacksonville, for instance, you can go buy those cheap $100,000 houses. You know, you go to Miami, you're probably not going to find any. It's like buying in Toronto. Most of those are million-dollar homes, right? But it still can work. Like, it still works. You're just going to have to be a little bit more flexible on, uh, you know, you may not want your exact vacation spot. You might be more of a blue-collar area. And what are some of your favorite states in terms of the friendliness to landlords and Canadian owners and whatnot? So these aren't necessarily all markets that I work in, but I believe the most landlord-friendly state in the U.S. right now, because this does change, the list changes every couple of years. I believe it's Arkansas that has the most landlord-friendly laws. Ones that are typically up on the list are your Texas, your Indiana, your Florida, your Michigan. Alabama? Alabama is usually just behind them. Ohio is just behind them, but they're still good. Like, you know, like, what do you mean by just behind them? Like, well, I mean, it means you probably aren't going to file your eviction until behind a month in rent. Whereas some of those other states, you're going to file your eviction when they're two weeks behind rent, right? They're just slightly, not quite as good for landlord friendly, but still pretty good. Their landlord tribunal runs a lot faster. You can go get it done in Set your date, you'll get in there in two weeks, you know, do your eviction and have them out another two weeks later in a lot of cases, right? So you're talking, you know, two months tops. Certain states, Missouri used to be really, really landlord friendly, but they've changed some laws recently. But before you'd go to court and every time I did, my tenants would show up with money. They're like, here's the cash. And they'd hand it to my paralegal or whoever was there. And they'd be like, don't file the eviction. I'll sign basically the equivalent of in Ontario, the N8 to say, hey, we're going to leave. And then they'd leave, right? Because they just didn't want the eviction filed because it was public record and they wouldn't be able to rent anywhere else because they have a public eviction, which I'd love Ontario to get that. You know how powerful that would be for yeah. if you're going to ruin some landlords' lives, that it's public that you've done this. And so you don't get to do it again. You get away with it once, right? And you don't get to be those professional tenants. Get rid of them. Thank yeah, you. I agree with that. Hundred percent. <laughs> if you had to give one example of like, let's use maybe Ohio for example, because I know you've got quite a bit of properties there. Yeah. Let's just say like a typical Burr single family dwelling. What would be like a quick and dirty 
example of like, hey, this is what your purchase price would be looking like around today. You know, I know it's kind of hard to say, like it depends on the property and location, but if you're able to kind of give us an example there. Yeah, so like you just nailed it. It's going to depend on location. It's not even like, oh, it's in Dayton versus in Cincinnati. I'm talking like it depends on the neighborhood. It depends on the school zone, the crime zone. But typically what I'm looking for when I'm buying properties is 65 cents on the dollar is usually my buy button. And what that means is purchase plus rental to be 65% of the ARV. So if it was a $100,000 house, the most I'd pay would be you know 65,000 including rental. So a 40 purchase, a 25K rental. That's the rough numbers. You get into better neighborhoods, you're not going to find those numbers. It's not going to make sense. Why I say 65 is because sometimes we're foreign nationals, what the Americans call us, Canadians. And a lot of times the lending is at 65 loan to value. Right. So if you want to do a perfect burn, get your money out, except for the fees, if you do it right at 65, well, that's where you need to be at, right? In order to pull it off. And if you do your underwriting that way, then the rates change. Because sometimes they're 70 for Canadians, sometimes they're 75. Typically purchase loans are 70. A refi loan is at 65, but it does change. During COVID, I was getting 75 loan to value on cash out refis, which varies, right? Right now, it's not good for anything for lending right now. So it's at 65, sometimes 60, depending on the lender. But if you do your underwriting at those numbers, you'll be pleasantly surprised when it goes up. We did some projects and then we did a perfect burr. We bought it at like, I think, 62 cents on the dollar. Then we have some money for the fees. And then when we were done, we were getting 75 loan to value. And guess what? We all get paydays on top of all of the money back out of it. So that's kind of how I run it. But I think, what was the question? What's a typical purchase? I'd like to say what a typical one is, is a 50 purchase, a 50 reno and 160 sale price. You pay a, a realtor, you pay some utilities, you walk away with 45 grand, split it with a joint venture. That's a flip. <laughs> and then if you do it in Florida, it's more expensive. We typically buy in around the $300,000 mark, selling for the 500,000 sort of mark and you know, dropping in, depends on the project, 60 to 100 and making your 100 grand. You make more money in Florida, but you'll make a less percentage than you will in some other states. Right. So it's a trade-off. You do some leverage in it, fix a flip loan on it, and you're like, Florida's awesome, right? So yeah. it's just about understanding what you're trying to do, I'm not trying to push a round hole into a square peg. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Love it, Glenn. Thanks for that breakdown. Yeah, that was awesome. Thanks so much for jumping on today. I think I definitely learned a lot. Curious about investing in the States myself. So it was good <laughs> to have you on today. And I know a lot of our listeners will appreciate that as well. You do have a conference coming up, multifamily conference, the 21st of October, I believe. Yep. 1st of October. Fire us that link and we'll post it in the show notes for everyone there as well. So they can sign up and, and come out to that. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that with everybody. And yeah, reach out if you have questions. As Tom knows, I'm an open book. You send me a text, I will respond. <laughs> I can vouch for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Glenn. Appreciate it. Nice fun. Thanks for having me. Cheers. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production. <laughs>